Well, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be continuing our message, our series through the book of First Thessalonians. And we'll be in First Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. So I'll give you a second to, uh, to turn there, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4. And as you're doing that, um, I want to just take a little, take a moment here to just say thank you. Uh, I, John, if you can uh, put the next slide up there for me. I just want to say thank you so much to all of those who have contributed financially and spiritually to our summer mission trip that's coming up with our youth. Uh, I, some of you have given anonymously, so I want to just say a thank you to everybody that's given in that regard. And some of you have given and let us know, and I hope you've received your thank you cards. But um, so far, our students who are going on our summer mission trip, we're about 65% of our funding. And we have a couple weeks. Yeah, so praise God. Uh, we got a couple more weeks to go before we got to have the, the full amount in. But you can see there our trips are, our trip is in July, in the middle of July. So be in prayer for our students. We have 10 students and six adults who will be going to the Dominican Republic. We've, the last couple months we've been meeting regularly, talking about mission work, talking about what it means to serve, what it means to look at others who may not be as fortunate financially as us, but how to look at them as just people just like each one of us. We're no different. We may have more money here in Western New York than they do in Dominican Republic, but guess what? We were all created by the same creator. And so to love people in that regard is some of the things we've been talking about with our students and with our leaders. And uh, we've also just been getting together and um, doing a couple of uh, fundraisers. So again, thank you for all that. And uh, I wanted to make sure I said that right up front before I get uh, into the word today so that you know just where my heart is this morning for you guys and for your support. So thank you. Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Like I, like I said, we are continuing our, our series through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And this morning we come to a pivotal point in the book of Thessalonians, this letter. And before we get to the main text of the scripture, let's just kind of do a little review of what's been happening. For the past three chapters, Paul has taken the time to really commend the church in Thessalonica, to encourage them, to say how blessed he is by them, to talk about the relationship he's had with them. He spent three chapters giving us not necessarily doctrine, although we've been able to pull some nuggets of truth out of what Paul has said, but really the, the brunt of the, the past three chapters of Thessalonians has been about, hey, this is what it looks like when a church is committed to God. Your example extends through all the region. People are hearing about Jesus because you're living a Jesus-centered life. And Paul just takes that time and just, he rejoices in what God is doing. And we really get a heart for what Paul and his ministry was in Thessalonica. And what we also get from the previous couple chapters of this book are really kind of like the microcosm of what the big church should be about, right? Like Paul, as a missionary, went to these, these towns. He went into the synagogues. He started these churches that in Thessalonica, at least, included Jewish people, included non-Jewish people. And from this, we get kind of a picture of what the big church looks like. So as I like to tell the students upstairs when this morning, for instance, we were kind of looking at some of the scripture, like we're really, we're reading someone else's mail at this point. You, you all understand that, right? Like, don't do this when you go home and open your neighbor's mail, okay, because it's against the law. But this morning, as we open God's word, it's okay, we can do that. But we get this big picture now, and I, the mailman in the room has a big smile on his face, just so you know that, okay? We get this big picture of what the church should look like. So I hope in the past few messages as we've been going through, 
you haven't just been sitting back and saying, that's great 2,000 years ago. How does that apply to my life today? Because it does. We should be encouraging one another. We should be going out doing mission work. We should be encouraging one another to live faithfully in light of what the Lord has done. Today, we get to chapter 4, where Paul now transitions into, uh, into more of an instructional type of writing. He's going to lay out some things for us that might be difficult for us to hear over the next couple chapters. But this is that transition point in the text where Paul goes from just that commendatory speaking to, hey, let's get right down to the meat of the message that I want to present to you today. This is very similar to what Paul does in Ephesians. If you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, Paul spends the first three chapters. It's doctrine. It's heavily uh, doctrine, right? You're saved by grace through faith alone. Um, he, he goes into, he talks about all these things that are related to being saved. And then in chapter 4 he says, now let's put that into practice. And this is exactly what Paul's going to do here for us this morning as we look at chapter 4. So that being said, I hope we're all ready. Let's dive right into what God's word says uh, as we've got it up here on the screen. Chapter 4, verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instruction we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's stop there and let's kind of dive into what God's word is saying here. You know, what I find funny about this passage of scripture is what does he say in the very beginning? We instruct, as you know, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. He's not going to tell us anything different that we've already heard before in the text. You know, sorry if you came this morning and you're waiting for a big giant revelation from the Lord, right? Paul says in the scripture, I'm going to remind you of some things that we already talked about, but I want to make sure that you're focused on these things. Now, how many of you have that one friend that no matter when you get together with them, they always seem to tell you the same stories about their life. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of you can raise your hand. I know you're guilty in that because I hear a lot of stories in this church. <laughs> and I love you for it. But you know what I'm saying? Like there's some truth to those stories. There's some, there's some knowledge and wisdom we gain from even hearing that story again and again and again. And it's kind of like that with what Paul's about to do right now. He, he loves these folks so much that he's going to remind them of some things and encourage them even more along their journey of the Christian walk. And what's funny here is that, um, you know, it's, it's like almost as if he's, um, he's like that guy who likes to tell the same story over and over. He wants to keep reminding us. All right. So when we look at this text, as for, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. We know this already because the first three chapters have given us the example of their faith. Okay, and in fact, he says that as in fact you are living, now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Interesting use of words here. That phrase that Paul uses here, more and more, is going to come up again later on in a, in a few verses. But there's an idea here of an overabundance. Paul is saying the things that I've taught you, the things that you've been living, I want you to do them more and more. I want you to overflow is basically the concept. I want you to overflow the things that you are doing, how you are living. I want you to let them overflow out of your life. I want them to be a part of everything you do. And so that they overflow and that they, you know for a fact that you are in fact living for the Lord. 
Now, check this out. What I love about this, uh, of course, being the youth pastor, you know, the example I gave the students this morning is, you know, when you're younger and, and you, are, you are actually able to enjoy a bowl of cereal on your own and your mom and dad aren't making the bowl of cereal for you, you know, what happens is that as you're pouring the milk, you know, you're not really sure about the balance, the weight balance of that milk carton. Do you know what I'm talking about? Right? It's just like, you know, and as you pour that milk, what happens? You pour so much milk that the cereal overflows over the, over the, the bowl and makes a mess. You know, this concept of overflowing, this concept of just being in abundance. Paul is telling them that these are the, this is what you need to do in your life. You need to overflow in the things that we're going to be talking about. And then he goes on to say, For you know what instruction we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Wow. What a powerful statement. What a powerful statement that Paul is making that I think is really appropriate for the message we just heard about the Bible translation. Paul says to them, you know the authority that we spoke on, the authority of Jesus. Seven times in the book of Thessalonians, Paul will relate the importance of the message that he spoke with the power and authority of God. Think about that for a moment. <clears throat> he was essentially saying, I am speaking on God's behalf. Seven times he does this through the book of Thessalonians. Let's put this culturally in perspective for Paul's period, time period. It is believed that Thessalonians was, one, was the first book written during the New Testament time. It's believed that this book was written probably about A.D. 50, 51. So we're looking at about 20 years since Jesus walked the earth that this book was written. This book was written probably about two to three years since Paul had seen the Thessalonians on his missionary journey. And so 20 years since Jesus Christ, you have an apostle of Jesus stating that he is speaking by the authority and by the power of God himself. Now, if I were to stand up here today and tell you that I have a new revelation from God, all of you would probably take caution, right? Because we know that God has spoken to us through his word. And I don't have a secret message for you. That's not the way God operates. We know God has spoken to us through his word. But imagine being one of Paul's hearers and hearing him say, I am speaking by the authority of God. And consider this in light of the fact that the Jewish folks at this time had the scriptures that we refer to as the Old Testament. And so throughout the Bible, we, we see that Paul, Peter, some of the other apostles believe that the words they spoke, the things they wrote down, were in fact just on par and at the same level as some of those Old Testament writings found in the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures. This is important for us because when we get to the application of this text, it's not Mario speaking. It's not my great ideas. It's God's word. It's what's, what God has for each one of us to hear this morning as we open his word. Let me give you a few examples here in Thessalonians. Paul says in verse, chapter 1, verse 5, he relates his message to the power and to the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 8, he says, this is the Lord's message. Chapter 2, verse 4, he says he's been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 9, he says, I'm preaching the gospel of God. 
Chapter 2, verse 13, he says, I'm preaching the word of God. Chapter 3, verse 2, the gospel of Christ. And finally, in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, I'm not giving human instruction, but I'm giving instruction from God. Did our ears perk up a little bit? Instruction from God. I pray this morning I can adequately um, speak God's word so that we grow as believers. And if we're not a believer, that we grow to know and come to know God. It is this jumping board, if you will, that Paul now begins his instruction to the Thessalonians. Again, he's not telling them anything new, but he's reminding them of something they've already heard. If you had a moment to speak the most important thing in your life to a group of people, what would it be that you would say? What would the words be that you would say if you know you only had a few minutes to live and you were about to speak the last words of your life? In a sense, this is kind of what Paul's doing here. What is Paul saying, going to say to these Thessalonians? What is he going to remind them? He could talk to them about a whole bunch of stuff, right? He could talk to them about how Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, how he rose again to give us eternal life. He could talk about the importance of baptism. He could talk about the Lord's Supper. He could talk about any of the Old Testament saints. He, could, he, had a whole, he has a whole smorgasbord of topics to talk about. And yet what does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 3? He says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Of all the things Paul could have talked about and reminded this church, he begins by saying, it is God's will that you are sanctified. Let's not even get into the rest of the scripture right now. Let's just talk about that word right there, sanctified. Because it is God's will that you are sanctified. Little church, Thessalonians. Big church, us, Western New York. It is God's will that you are sanctified. I'll say it again. It is God's will that you are sanctified. If you came this morning to hear a message from God, if you came this morning to hear a new word from the Lord, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Well, Mario, what does that mean? Because that's, like, that's one of those big churchy words, right? That's one of those big churchy words that, you know, you don't see a bumper sticker. That, you know, you see a bumper sticker that says honk if you love Jesus, not honk if you're sanctified, right? I've never seen that bumper sticker before, right? That's, that's a churchy word. We don't, we don't walk around, you know, saying that. Your teachers in school don't walk around, you know, well, are you sanctified? They don't, we don't talk like that, right? What is he talking about here? Let's spend the majority of our time this morning talking about what this means to be sanctified. In fact, the title of this message is um, A Call to Moral Purity, and it relates to that. So let's, let's spend the bulk of our time here talking about what it means to be sanctified. Now, you need to understand something. In chapter 4, verses 3, verse 4, and verse 7, Paul uses the same Greek word. However, it's translated two different ways. Chapter 3... It's sanctified. In, chapter, in verse 4 and verse 7, 
he uses the word holy. So there's, there's, some, there's something going on here that I think we need, to, we need to take some time to look at so we can really get the grasp of what, uh, what this is referring to. All right, the Greek word that's used is the Greek word hagiasmo. And as I mentioned before, when Paul uses it in this context, he uses it as the word sanctified or holy. And in a general sense, what, he, what it's referring to is the state of being. A state of being. What does that mean? It's kind of weird, right? Okay. It's kind of like the song we just sang, Good, Good Father, right? It's who you are. It's who I am. That's what it kind of refers to. It's, it's, there's something going on here between who God is, who we are, that nothing will change our state of being based on our relationship with God. There's other scriptures that use this. Most importantly, uh, 1 Peter 1, 2. Paul be, uh, Peter begins his scripture by even saying that we are sanctified by the Spirit of God. So there's this sense that God is doing something in our life. And that it's the Lord who is doing something, creating us to be something. The word hagiasmo is also translated throughout the New Testament as the word holy. And let me give you an example of where this word is used. Romans chapter 6 verse 9. Paul says this. Offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, the writer of Hebrews states, Make every effort to live in peace and to be holy. All these words are the same word, hagiosmos. And what does it mean? What does that word mean? Well, when we take a look at some of the other, some of the other ways it's used in the scripture, what it carries with it is the sense of being ceremonially clean. Do you know what I mean by that? We need us to put ourselves in the mindset of a first century Jewish person. When we talked about being ceremonial, ceremoniously clean, what we were referring to is having to do with the temple. If you remember from learning the, about the Old Testament and the temple in the Old Testament, there were certain things that were considered holy. There were certain things that were considered consecrated. We set them apart. We didn't let things intermix. We set them apart. In fact, God even had the people build a bronze uh, wash basin so that what would happen? They would come, they would take the sacrifice, and they would wash the sacrifice before they put it on the altar. It had to be ceremonious, ceremonially clean. The priest, Aaron and his sons, before they even went into the tabernacle, before they went into the tent of meeting, before they went into the temple, they had to come to this basin. They had to wash themselves. They had to change their clothes. They had to be clean before they could enter into God's presence. And this is the idea of what this scripture verse is saying, what this word means. It means to be sanctified, to be set apart. Aaron and his brothers, the priests, were set apart for the service of God. Those tools, those utensils, those things that were used during the, the ceremony, they were washed, they were set apart. They were not to be used just for any old thing. They could only be used during the temple service. When you brought your lamb or your, your, your animal to be sacrificed, the priest would take the blood. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant symbolizing atonement and the washing away of sins for the nation. So I hope you're getting an image here of what Paul is saying when he says we are 
to be sanctifying. It is God's will that we are set apart, that we are separate from what? Well, from the world, from the world and all the ways that the world would seem to destroy us. Are you set apart this morning? Are you sanctified by God? Can I tell you something? It's something that God's got to do in your life. He sets you apart. And this is what Paul says. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Well, what does that mean? If being set apart is um, a, a state of who we are as a believer in Jesus, what does that mean when we talk about God being holy? What does that mean about when we say God is a holy God? We sing that song, holy, 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 right? Beautiful song, right? Everybody knows that song, right? And when we think about holiness, sometimes the first thing that comes to our mind is this idea that we do everything right. We are the shining example of moral perfection, right? Is that what that song is saying? When we sing holy, 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 are we saying, God, you do, uh, everything you do is right. There's nothing you do wrong. In a sense, there is, right? Because there's moral perfection involved. I want you to listen to what um, one author has stated about the holiness of God. He says that holiness in relation to God describes that which separates him from creation. Interesting. Listen to what else he says. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendently separate he is so far above and beyond us that we seem almost totally, that he seems almost totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other, to be different in a special way. Wow, how great thou art. We know that God is, there is none like the Lord, praise God. There was none like him. And yet this creator God, who fashioned everything according to his purpose and plan, has reached down to humanity and said, Mario, I am setting you apart. I am sanctifying you. And Paul, one of his disciples, writes, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. You see, because when the transcendent meets the earthly, there's something spectacular that happens. And as believers, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, we are consecrated according to God's transcendence. So what does that mean for us? When we talk about moral purity, you better believe that we should represent this God as believers walking this earth. Because we just don't represent ourselves. We represent him who created us and put his spirit into us and who has created us to be set apart and sanctified. Theologian N.T. Wright says that holiness is the shining reflection that appears in human character when we learn in practice what it means to be in God's image. There's a weight there that almost seems unbearable for us. You mean I have to represent God? I have to live my life sanctified, different than the people around me? If I really say I'm a believer in Jesus, I actually have to be different? Yes. Because the spirit of the living God is inside of you. And he's causing you to be different. 
And can I be real with each one of us this morning? If you're a believer here today in the Lord Jesus, you know that that's hard work. You know that's hard work. Because we sin. We still fall short of God's glory. We battle sin daily. We're tempted by the devil. We're tempted to forsake the things of God. And church, I'm going to tell you this morning, that's going to continue until the day that we shed this earthly vessel and we stand in God's presence and are glorified before him. But yet this is what God has called us to, to live a life that is set apart to be sanctified. And I'm going to be very clear this morning. This is the burden of the believer. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, if you have not come to a place in your life where you've looked at the cross and seen Jesus' sacrifice on that cross for you and believe that he took that sacrifice for you and by faith you've received the work that he's done, if you have not come to that place in your life, I'm going to tell you, there's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. In fact, the Bible says that you are actually under... Under the, um, under the spell of the devil in Ephesians. The Bible says that you are held captive by the enemy to do his will rather than God's will. So the burden, of, the burden of working and the burden of being sanctified is for the believers that are here this morning. But I want to tell you one thing. As a non-believer, if you are here today, you can know the grace of God and know that regardless of the fact that we are sinful... That Jesus still loves us just as we are and he created us to walk in the newness of life with him. You can know that grace and joy today. In fact, that's the testimony of Martin Luther. The reformer Martin Luther lived his life as a monk. And Martin Luther's problem was that he would go to confession. And he'd step out of the confessional booth and he would realize, I'm still a sinner. There's still, I just thought a bad thought. How do I escape God's wrath? Because I, there's not enough prayers I can do. He, he said, I, I pray more than anybody. I do more good works than anybody. There's nothing I can do to accept that God will accept me. I just know this because I just feel this weight of sin on me. And it wasn't until he read Romans chapter 1 where he realized it's through the work of God that we are sanctified, not the work of the flesh. And so this morning, maybe you're one of those individuals who is trying in the flesh to be acceptable in God's eyes. I want to tell you right now, the point when you come to the cross, you are sanctified. You are washed and made clean. Well, Mario, what about those people who say they're Christians but don't walk the walk and talk the talk? Honest answer? Tongue in cheek? Not my problem. Because I know God has called me, he's called you to live sanctified. And if you're in the sound of my voice today, it now is your problem. You need to walk and be a believer who walks sanctified in the Lord Jesus. Let's move on. We're going to run out of time. Let's finish up with some application here because it's right here in front of us. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Wow. So you can go one, one more slide back, guys. Wow. We got to go there this morning. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Let me, for the sake of time, let me put this in the context of where, where we are at in the New Testament. Thessalonica, of course, was a Roman city. And in Roman culture, 
in Greek culture that influenced Roman culture. The um, sexual immorality was something that was acceptable. Matter of fact, you could go to church and be sexually immoral. It was just a thing that you could do back then. Okay? In Thessalonica, in the vicinity of Thessalonica, was the temple to the Roman god Bacchus, or Dionysus, the Greek god. If you're familiar with those with mythology, Bacchus, Dionysus, same guys. And you want to know what, what his big thing was? Party, man. It's all about partying. All about living the life to the fullest and whether that meant sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That was it. Now you see why Paul says, control your own body. Because a lot of these believers in Thessalonica, they came from that lifestyle where they were just living their life as good, as good Roman citizens, doing the things Roman citizens do. And Paul says, you can't live like that anymore. You're set apart to God. You have to now avoid those things, learn to control your own body in a way that is holy. There's that word again. Hagiosmos. And honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. You see, the word does call us to action in our life. And we could talk about, we could talk about sexual immorality and what that means for us today. And I will touch on that for a moment here because I think it's important. When the Bible does talk about sexual immorality, it talks to things that are outside of the marriage bed. So not just things like adultery, not just things like fornication, but things like pornography. Things that aren't honoring to God. In fact, the Greek word that is used here when he says sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea, which we get our word pornography from. So Paul is addressing these issues and he's warning the church, you need to stay away from these things. You need to stay away from these things. Why? Because God has created you to be different, to walk differently. And we can take the sexual immorality out of there, put something else up there, alcohol, drinking, whatever it is that you're doing in excess that doesn't bring honor to God, materialism, whatever it is, put that in its place. And God is saying to us this morning, don't do it. Don't live your life like that. Be different. Be sanctified, be connected with your maker and live a life that he created you to live and honor him in everything you say and you do.